Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to the Duel of the Greats podcast. Episode 5, here we are. It's Frankenstein week, or the modern day Prometheus, which actually fits in really well with our topic this week, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before that, introductions, of course, I am Jeff Herr. With me, as always, our local historian, Steve Shepard, and our, our wonderkind himself, Nate Carter. How, how are you guys doing today on this lovely evening? It always feels weird on a podcast to say, like, what the actual time is. How are you doing this evening? Because pot, the beauty of podcasts, anybody can listen anywhere. But it's evening for us as we record this. Playable on demand, I think, is what pod stands for. There you go. Look at that. Yeah, it's great. How it's are you guys evening. doing on this evening as we record? Doing well, Hugh. Always, always. All right. So what what would be Frankenstein week, you might ask? One might ask. And we did ask that question, and we answered it. And so the if you've been listening all season, you know, you will the greats podcast, what we're doing here, comparing, comparing the uh, filmographies of Steven Spielberg with Ridley Scott, common themes, certain um, just common angles that they've taken or, or common angles that, that common points in their careers that have come up and, and what they've, uh, you know, different paths that they've taken with those certain things. And well, here we are with a, the idea of of playing God, right? Which is what was the genesis of, of Frankenstein, which is why I decided to call that, or why we decided to call this week Frankenstein week. But but um, you know, more importantly, just how do these how do these two directors who are uh, have a lot of similarities, but also have very very subtle differences that have played out in very large ways in their films? How 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 would they approach and attack something like this, especially given um, you know, the idea of, of sort of playing God, of, of, of a character stepping in for a godlike figure to, to, in forms of creation. You know, you're someone with Steven Spielberg who has, you know, a, a history we've talked about, um, very, very long sort of battle that he's had with his own religion. And we've talked about Ridley Scott and his views on religion and everything. So how do, how do those play out in, in in a in a movie format of how they can how they really view just God and how he interacts with humanity, right? And it's a really interesting um it's actually quite interesting that they've both sort of taken a stab at this and come out with with I think very different approaches. So I think we'll we're gonna dive into that and kind of take a look and see what we think, you know, which which approach we liked better. And and the the shining examples for for these two directors they actually have they actually both kind of have tandem films that 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 work in this um in this regard so for steven spielberg there is jurassic park and the lost world of course right and we all know you know if if you can imagine ian malcolm which i'm sure you can because who can't right but talking about he he's essentially you know saying in the movies, you're you're trying to play God here. This is this is wrong. This is what you're doing. You know, nature selected dinosaurs for extinction. You're bringing them back. This is against nature, and it's something that only uh, only a God would have the power to do. And that's what you're trying to insert yourself as, right? And then that kind of snowballs into the Lost World and the and the um, 
how they continue on with the plot from that regard. And then in Ridley Scott, um, you know, we talked about Alien a few weeks ago, but Alien didn't really didn't really tackle that subject. But he, it's something that Ridley Scott has shown himself to be pretty passionate about. I think at least from an idea standpoint in his career. And he, to the point where he came back and revisited it in 2012 with Prometheus, which was obviously in the alien universe and then followed it up a few years later in 2017 with alien covenant where, you know, you have Peter Whalen and David, the Android and how they, um, and the engineers themselves in those movies and how they, um, sort of how they play God and what that means for the characters who are trying to discover what, how this happened and why it happened and everything. So um, it was actually kind of, you know, I, I think one of the, the more fun things about starting this podcast, even before we started recording, just creating these sort of themes and stuff, it was just so interesting to just find out this kind of stuff. Obviously, we, everyone knows, if you're a fan of either of these directors, that they directed these movies. But trying to put it in that context and find that common theme and how how much it kind of fits, like I don't know about you guys, but I thought that was kind of really fun, and that it's really been you know this week especially I think this is the first week that it'll really be less of um, that we're going to try to tackle less of the movie versus movie and more of the director's approach in one versus the director's approach in the other for a specific theme. Um, we'll definitely have more of that this season, but this will be kind of the first one where it's just not a direct movie versus movie approach and finding that they have these movies that tackle this and the similarities and the differences and kind of looking at it. I, I, something that I just, had we not done this podcast, I never would have even thought of in that context. So I, I just think that's, that's fun besides the fact that we're actually going to dive deeply into it. You guys, you guys agree? Are you guys in that regard? I think that they, you know, we've talked about the similarities with these filmmakers, and like you said, Jeff, it's, you know, I think when we set out to do this, there were certain movies that we wanted to cover, and I think the one that came about of how we wanted to cover it was like, well, we have to talk about Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. We have to talk about Jurassic Park. And then when we started to look at, well, what can we actually put it with, and then when you kind of started to pair these things together, and you talk about, like you said, this larger thematic idea I feel like they fit really, really well this week. Probably as good as they have fit uh, since, uh, you know, probably our our Jaws Alien episode was such a good, clean fit uh, with one another. And it's just interesting to see throughout their whole careers as we go through this of how many of their movies uh, and how many of the statements that they make really do kind of fit together like sort of odd uh, puzzle pieces and how, and how it's worked out. Yeah, because I don't think anybody's going to argue how prominent Spielberg and Scott have been in their careers, but I don't think anyone would, would group them together like we have and, and really find similarities, myself included, you know, had we not done this exercise, I probably wouldn't have thought in that context, but yeah, like you said, it's very interesting that it, that it has worked out so, so well. Um, so interestingly in that regard, Steve, would you, sorry, I didn't mean to sound like you were going to say something. I didn't want to, cut you off there no nothing unique to add aside from what you guys were saying this is it is kind of a fun opportunity to instead of just looking at hey here are their monster movies and compare them head to head you know like you said we get to really see what drives the directors you know kind of what makes them tick um 
Yeah. So fundamentally, what's more, what goes to the heart of things more than, you know, the nature of being and why we're here. And to, to start off, I mean, we can, we can start with the, uh, the, the, the movies that came first and that would be from Jurassic Park and the Lost World from Spielberg. So there's a lot of interesting stuff here in regards to for to take this this playing god theme, okay? And it, like I said with with the Ian Malcolm character, that that idea is confronted directly in the movie. But one of the things that that is interesting that uh, so uh, unfortunately I it's sad that I have to that I have to say this, but as many times as I've seen Jurassic Park and the Lost World, I have never read either book for Michael Crichton. So um, that is something. It is on my list to do, but I have not done it. Now I will. Nate, have you have you read them? So I've read both the books, and I will say this is actually something that I had in my notes um, that I'll probably just get. I'll just say right now, just to kind of get it out of the way, is that this is a, a an example. And I say this, by the way, as an English teacher. I say this as someone <laughs> who who teaches English. The uh, particularly the first Jurassic Park, the movie is a very clear example, um, one of perhaps the most shining examples in all of cinema, at a movie that is just better than the book. It's mm-hmm. just better than the book. Um, it is a greater artistic statement in every way. Uh, the only other movies that I think would be in the same realm of how much better they are than their source material is Godfather, Godfather 1 and 2, which are both kind of loose adaptations of the novel. Um, I just think that... First dress, it's. I think if you read the books, you will see that, and this is the case with a lot of Michael Crichton books. We were talking about this just before we started recording that I kind of went through a Michael Crichton phase uh, when I was like in middle school. He was my first sort of adult author that I read a lot of his nice. books, and uh, he's very technical, he's very sciencey, and Spielberg does such a good job of communicating those things to a mass audience, and he cuts out. Uh, a lot of stuff. The the scenes where in Jurassic Park, in the first Jurassic Park, where, you know, they're going through, John Hammond has a little cartoon and version of himself that he's interacting Mr. with. Mr. DNA. Movie. Yeah, Mr. DNA. I have a Mr. Steve and I have Mr. DNA Funko Pops. <laughs> yeah. That, that's like these long sequences in the book where he has this typeface that shows like all these DNA sequences and how they did this. And it's, uh, I, for whatever reason, I don't know why I don't recall being bored by it when I was young because I just thought it was so cool. I was reading such a, you know, such an adult book. But um, I, you know, again, it's just a, such a good example of how Spielberg is able to read that and look at that and say, we're going to do something a little bit different for a mass audience. And then ultimately what he does differently for a mass audience is actually, in my opinion, a much higher artistic achievement than the book is. Yeah, and it's interesting. The... With Spielberg, he's got Jurassic Park, he's got The Lost World, and they were both um, both separate books written by Michael Crichton. And so he's got source material to work off of there. And even though, you know, Alien in that universe wasn't a book, the by the time Ridley Scott gets back to revisiting it and putting in these topics in um, Prometheus and Alien Covenant, you can essentially... It, it's essentially the same thing at that point, right? Because... The alien that he created, um, let's see, that would have been thirty, almost thirty-five years earlier. Um, that that had taken on a life of its own. Now, you know, he he had that creation, and it created, spawned this whole world. Predator somehow gets involved. <laughs> you know, there's there's so many 
different things, so much lore, so much additional story that's been added. It's this whole new world here that it doesn't even quite resemble exactly what he created. And so he's got, it's almost like this, he's now working from different source material to create these um, these new stories. So that's kind of interesting when, when you kind of look at the the nucleus behind how those both of them came about. But one of the things I was going to bring up with that with Jurassic Park was, so when I think of playing God, right, in this, in the context of Jurassic Park, I think of John Hammond. And that's where the friction between Ian Malcolm and John Hammond takes place. And so the, however, from, again, even though I haven't read the books, my wife has, I've talked to her about it. There's, I'm an avid um, visitor of the Jurassic Park subreddit. So, you know, there's lots of discussion, difference between movies and book, movie and book there. And one of the big difference everyone always brings up is John Hammond in the books is a, like, out-and-out capitalist a-hole, does not care about anyone or anything in the pursuit of the almighty dollar type of figure. And so the his reasoning for creating Jurassic Park, the, the actual theme park in the movie, isn't is is to make money. And the in Spielberg's version, and this is where I, I think you really start to see how Spielberg is is trying to look at this. I think he he probably streamlines some of it is probably like you said, Nate, for for the interest of streamlining it. But I also think there's some that that he just doesn't want to have that nakedly awful of a villain there to be that kind of a to, to be that kind of a main character, right? Because the um, that's just not his style necessarily. When he has those characters, those villains, right? They're like Nazis, pretty much. <laughs> so, or just people that that are just sort of there to be bad guys. Um, and, and John Hammond, I don't think he envisioned him that way. And so he, he changed him to be this sort of benevolent figure. And this, he, he cares about, he wanted to bring the dinosaurs to the world, right? He cares about family. He cares about his, his grandkids so much. And that's, again, a very Spielberg trait to, to care. And so that, when you think about what this character was meant to be in, in, the Crichton novel and then how that translates. I think that really says a lot about how Spielberg looks at God and his relationship to humanity, right? As, as more of a sort of wholesome look, which is, which is shows through in a lot of his movies, I think, and more of a benevolent creature that is trying to, to help humanity to bring stuff to them as opposed to, to take something away or punish them. I think that you're absolutely right, and I think that we're really going to, this is the difference that we're going to talk about this week. I think it's worth noting the director's personal beliefs. Spielberg is obviously Jewish and has kind of said that he grew up a little bit more culturally Jewish, but came to understand that in kind of a more spiritual sense in terms of his actual religious beliefs as he got older. It seems to me that, you know, the difference between these things, and we'll talk about this more when we get to the Alien movies, is that Spielberg believes in something. He, he believes in something, and he believes that there is some kind of goodness that is that is dictating uh, humanity and the creatures on this Earth. And so there's always this tinge of hope. And that's that's something that has that permeates all of his films, is there's some sort of tinge of hope. 
uh, even in Schindler's List, which we've talked about, uh, you know, this movie about the you know, one of the worst humanitarian things to have occurred in the last 100 years, um, really in the last 500 years, or probably in all of recorded human history, uh, he is still able to find this 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 sense of hope in that. And I'm not sure uh, that Ridley Scott feels the same way. And it's interesting to look at. And I'm not to be clear. I'm not saying one way or the other that one way is right or wrong. Ridley Scott himself has said that he is an atheist and then has kind of clarified the comments later and said that he doesn't really know. He's probably more agnostic, but it seems like there's that lack of belief. It seems like there is a lack of this goodness and this reach for hope that Spielberg has. And I don't know if that's necessarily dictated by their actual spiritual beliefs, but if you look at the these movies and the outcome of these movies, it, that's kind of what it seems like. It's funny to me that both these Jurassic Park, the Jurassic Park movies, always, no matter what, no matter how bad it gets, they all end with some sort of the dinosaurs flourishing on the island, or they're flying away in a helicopter, and the little flying dinosaurs. There's always some like final thing of like, see, it was all good. Like, it's cool that there's dinosaurs here. He really reaches for that. Ridley Scott does not reach for that same kind of imagery at all. Yeah, so I watched, uh, I rewatched Jurassic Park, Prometheus, and Alien Covenant for this. Um, I'd seen The Lost World fairly recently, so didn't bother with that one again. But um, specifically for the two Ridley Scott movies, I watched the, the versions with director's commentary. And I've been trying to do that on as many of these films as I can, just to try to get a little bit more insight. And Ridley Scott... He, uh, yeah, you're definitely kind of onto something there as far as what he states his beliefs are. He does, strangely enough, uh, at one point, I think it was on Alien Covenant, he specifically, um, he explicitly stated that he believes in superior forces, quote-unquote, and the idea of something like a god. So I think he is, either he softened his stance or he's walked it back, but he very much is about processes and the the kind of situations um, that are necessary for evolution and things to occur. He very clearly, obviously, is a... Um, uh, <laughs> and it literally happens in the movie. We see evolution. So, you know, he, he very much subscribes to that. Um, and he, I think, is very much interested just in the 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 circumstances that are necessary for life to happen, for evolution to occur. And... He's not, it doesn't seem to me, based on hearing what he was saying and the result on screen, he's not as concerned with the why. Now, I realize it's kind of a weird thing to say when the whole driving point of the movie is, um, you know, the people out there searching for life and stuff, but, uh, or the reason for life uh, and Prometheus specifically. But I think he's much more interested in, yes, these people go out searching for it, but what happens after that? It's ultimately maybe even unknowable, uh, but it's the things that they set in motion during the search. Uh, it's all about the process for him, I think, instead of so much the the actual, you know, reason. Yeah, and it's with with Ridley Scott specifically. You know, there's there's so, and I don't know if it's intentional from Spielberg's point of view. But it's almost you could you could if you really wanted to sort of twist it, you could almost sort of take it as the um, 
you know, there's been a lot of different churches that, that we've seen the, the corruption of the church itself, right? But there's, that's the humanity side of it, right? The actual sort of spiritual side of a church, right? It, it's, it's spiritual. It, it, you know, you can't really corrupt that because it's something that's, that's nebulous. You can't like touch it. But the, the idea of a church that, you know, there's, you know, abuses that have happened within the Catholic church. There's different churches like Scientology or whatever that have had, you know, different abuses of, of people involved and, and money and, and all that sort of thing. And so, you know, you could almost sort of twist the idea of Jurassic Park into that concept, right? Because you've got the lawyer, Gennaro, right? Who he is, he, normally you would think of a lawyer in the sense of maybe not necessarily all about profit, but about making sure that, you know, their ass is covered, that they're going to be okay if something bad goes down. But eventually, and that's what, that lawyer starts out as, but then once he sees the dinosaurs, then he's like, we're going to make a fortune on this. And he's, they're sitting in there, they're having dinner and Hammond even, even sort of takes on that benevolent approach again. Cause the lawyer's like, Oh, you know, we're going to make so much money and people will pay that money to come to this, to this park no matter, all around the world. And Hammond's like, no, 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 we're not just catering this to the super rich. Everyone deserves to see these creatures. Everyone deserves, he's, he's bringing this to them. And then, and then you know, Gennaro says, "Oh well, we'll have some sort of a coupon day or something to bring it in," and 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 then you know, there's it just you you could almost sort of see it that way the 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 corruption of man versus you know the the benevolence of just wanting to bring this scientific this this creation that he's had to to everyone who who wants to see it. And this this goodness that he has in in, in make, taking that approach for him, and I, I always thought that was kind of an interesting way of looking at it. Whereas you flip over to Ridley Scott's side, and he's because even though you know, and again, I don't know if that's intentional on Spielberg's part, but you could at least sort of get yourself there if you really wanted to. But with Ridley Scott, you know, there is a a specific religious. Um, touch point and and just actual confrontation in the film right because it prometheus starts off with elizabeth shaw and david is watching her dreams which you can i guess do <laughs> in that world in the um when they're in cryosleep and she's dreaming about her father who is a religious man being a missionary and how important this how religion is to her and she's got you know she always wears the cross around her neck and so there's there's a much more direct sort of confrontation there and the you know when you get to the the end of prometheus right and cuz well, I guess to, at the very beginning of prometheus we essentially have the scene where the the engineers are sort of playing god themselves right because they're the the idea is they're creating all of humanity by by sacrificing one of their own this drinks the black liquid or whatever and then you get to the end and they find one of these engineers, and Peter Whalen's huge, um, his goal that he sacrificed all this stuff, almost his entire company to get is to, to play God in a sort of different way. And that's not to create something, but to defy creation, because part of creation is, is its end, right? Is the death, you know, life into death. But, but he's, he wants to defy that. And so then 
he meets this engineer. He's like, tell me the secrets. Tell me everything. And the engineer is like, F off, and just rips off David's head and just crushes Peter Whalen. He's dead and then just runs, and he's going to leave everything, right? And it's this idea that just, you know, there's, if there is, like you said, Steve, from what he, from what really Scott said in the commentary, if there are these, these forces out there, then who's to say they're completely benevolent? Who's to say, who's to say they even care? Because Elizabeth Shaw during the movie, she comes in sometimes, she's like, she's like, why, why did you want to eliminate us? We did nothing wrong. We did nothing wrong. And what's so interesting and what part of what I love about Prometheus is the engineers to wipe out humanity, they didn't care if you did anything right or wrong. It was an experiment to them and they just did, they just didn't get the result that they wanted. Or maybe they did and they just knew the experiment was over and so they were going to kill it. And when you think about a, a God possibly in that context, it becomes really scary that what if they just don't care? You know, and, and that's that's part of why I loved Prometheus. And that's a very stark difference, I think, when you look at the benevolence of Hammond trying to bring this, trying to bring humanity together with this versus these engineers just trying to, just not caring at all. I think yeah, you really, yeah, I think you really see that dichotomy with the way the directors sort of present the quote-unquote monster and that, a, the the alien, the xenomorph, throughout the franchise, is like this almost virus, this like parasite creature that you're never like the audience is never like empathetic with it. Okay, it's just this it's just this total killing machine. But the dinosaurs, uh, if you look at that throughout the series, you see them often, uh, you know, uh, kind of presented in this very nice light. The end of the first uh, Jurassic Park movie, the T-Rex actually kind of becomes yeah. the hero. and are rooting saves for him. The, yep, you're kind of rooting for him. And he the Jurassic saves... Park subreddit common, commonly refers to her as Rexy. Okay, Rexy, <laughs> Rexy saves the character. It's even funny because, and again, Spielberg was a producer on this. He didn't, uh, he didn't direct it, um, but I think it's uh, the, one of the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom where it's almost considered like this, um, this, uh, this environmental ecological crisis that these dinosaurs are going to be killed on the side, and people actually try and save the dinosaurs. That's like a that's a primary thing that guides the plot of that movie is that we actually now there's these animal rights activists that believe we should save these dinosaurs. There's nothing like that in Alien, and so I think that dichotomy, what you're talking about, Jeff, is presented so well in just their worldview and just like how what is the conception and creation of these monsters and how are they depicted on screen and you really see two different versions of that with these directors yeah ridley scott's universe is a uh, like you said it's it's an experiment that the engineers have put in place and it's it's they're interested in the the results and you know documenting it but they don't really carry either way and in fact ridley scott when he said about the scene where Whalen confronts the engineer or was talking to the engineer, um, trying to get the secrets of the universe. He, Ridley Scott said that he thinks that the engineer is almost offended um, that David, this creature that is not a human, that is not something that the engineers themselves created in their image and all this, something like that dared speak to to him. So almost like the subjects of the experiment, um, you know, they've, they've obviously spawned their own creations here. And that isn't, you know, that doesn't even deign rise to the level of something worth listening to because the engineers didn't design it. 
Um, I thought that was kind of an interesting uh, interpretation, especially considering he's the guy that made the movie. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, Because, yeah, like your your creation's creation, it's... uh, you know, it's yeah, just it's like a scoff a at hail imitation, right? Yeah, you know this. It's an it's an affront to how glorious your creation was to even try and think you could be on the same level because inst- because that's what that's what's happening, right? You're by creating, you are putting yourself in the in the role of your own creator, and so an engineer, those engineers obviously have their own feelings of superiority, and so they're gonna be like. What? Who the hell is this guy? Android. Oh, stop talking to me. I don't know. I mean, question how he knew immediately he was an Android. Different question for a different time. Not really discussing possible plot holes, of course, but um you know, if if you if you accept the conceit that he that he knew, then it becomes really a really interesting idea. Uh be especially because then as we move on to Alien Covenant. David's role becomes that of the intended creator. He wants, that's his goal. And we get that, that was baked in sort of in his programming from Peter Whelan when he was created. We get this sort of, um, this uh, opening shot of Alien Covenant where that was back before even Prometheus where, where David is serving Whelan and they talk about creation and, and how it's the greatest thing and all this stuff. So, you know, that's, and then, this whole idea of, you know, how is, I'm, I'm trying to verbalize this, but like how creation, you know, be, passing that on, is that, is that good or bad? You know, because the engineers view that as bad, but then Peter Whalen obviously viewed that as good and wanted, wanted David to have that. And then David's out there trying to, trying to create this, this new life form, this xenomorph, which he can't create. He can only reverse engineer, and that's when he realizes he needs actual life to create other life, and that's why you get this sort of this virus approach, like Nate, like you're talking about, and um, it, it's yeah, it's really it's it's a very stark contrast where you get because beyond just this this sort of playing God idea, there's in the two universes, you know, like you said, Nate, there's always this sort of hope that comes at the end, even the movies that he, that he didn't actually direct from the Jurassic uh, Park. And even, you know, you talk about the, the sort of environmental issue in, in Fallen Kingdom uh, for the Jurassic World, even in the Lost World at the very beginning, you know, part of the whole reason for the expedition going to the, the second site in the first place was because Hammond kind of wanted them to, to preserve because he's like, oh, this is amazing. We thought they would die and they're still alive and it's this is a miracle and this needs to be, you know, preserved and all that. Um, and so again, it's 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 him coming back to this, uh, and and Malcolm is still like, what are you doing? You're making the same mistake again. This is stupid, you know. And that, but it doesn't it doesn't matter because he's. He's sort of blinded by this, even if even if he thinks he's doing well, he's blinded by his own creation, his own ability to create. And then you actually get that little bit of that in the first movie, right? When they're in the um, discussing the flea circus, and um, Ellie Sattler's like, "It's you know, all this control is an illusion. You can't you can't have that control." And and Hammond is just like, "It's just not computing in his head," and you can tell. 
and um, it's it's really interesting to to see that even even when you've sort of sanitized Hammond and given him these best intentions, it's it's still just it's still never stopping to what Ian Malcolm says in the first one. You never stop to think if you should. One thing I think both filmmakers kind of agree on is creation itself does not confer control. And to think that that is the case is folly. I mean, that's the whole point of Ian Malcolm's character, right? Uh, you can't control this life finds a way, et cetera, et cetera. And John Hammond, despite all of his, good intentions is painfully learning this lesson over and over again, as it turns out. But, um, and, and obviously in Ridley Scott's universe, um, the engineers, they, they wind up succumbing to the, the creation of their creation. Uh, <laughs> it kind of comes back and bites them. So uh, it's, it's almost about the hubris of even, thinking that you have control over something once that, you know, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. Uh, it's not just the hubris of Prometheus challenging the gods. It's almost the hubris of the gods themselves to think that they ever actually had any control. And I think they both kind of lean into that a little bit. Something that there's this great kind of screenwriting moment in Jurassic Park where John Ham John Hammond uses this phrase over and over again throughout the movie. He will use the phrase, spared no expense spared no expense and one of my favorite little micro moments of, of any movie is when uh, toward the end the whole thing is falling apart and people are dying and all this stuff and uh he's sitting there with uh, ellie sattler and they're having ice cream they're having kind of this melted ice cream um and she just makes this remark of like she's crying and she kind of makes this remark of like it's good the ice cream is good and he it kind of has this you know force in on his face a little bit and it, it just has this just it, Every you know ounce of his being, he just goes spared no expense, and it, it's this moment of him repeating that line again. Steve, like you're saying, the hubris of like it's finally getting to him of like I can't buy it, like my my money didn't make it work, and in his instance, obviously it's a very monetary thing, but I can't just buy my way out of this problem like I have done with so much of my life, and that moment of that repeated line of spared no expense is a really really great. Uh, screenwriting moment that I always love and I've, I've learned to kind of recognize as I've gotten older. It's one of my favorite scenes. I noticed that for the very first time watching this movie, this last time, um, just, I mean, obviously I'd heard him say that scene, that line before in that scene, but just kind of really paying attention to his inflection and viewing everything through the lens of the exercise that we we've done here. It, it finally, that finally clicked with me. So I'm glad you brought that up because that really wasn't, just a perfect little moment. Yeah, that's interesting what? because I go ahead, Steve. I was going to ask about something else here about Hammond. So I want to hear what you have to think about. What oh, you I was about. just, I was just going to say I hadn't, that had never clicked for me until just now, but now that you bring it up, yeah, that was, uh, that's really, that's a uh, very, very astute observation as, as we've come, come to expect. <laughs> well, from, speaking from resident film expert here, that's why he's here. Uh, Speaking of things, both A, clicking, and B, things that uh, maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't. Um, can't remember if I read this on an article somewhere, or a podcast, or whatever, but once I, I noticed it, I, I always, obviously, see it when I watch Jurassic Park. The symbolism of, in the, uh, the helicopter scene when they're landing, and um, Dr. Grant can't 
find the, the, the male side of the buckle to plug in to his seatbelt. He only has two female sides. And so he, he, ties, he ties it. Life finds a way, even though just like in the park, you know, it's all females. But look what happened. So I don't know if you guys had ever noticed that, but um, I thought that's a lovely little bit of symbolism. I had not, but that's truly, um, that is interesting. That's fun. So um, that's kind of all I had in terms of just the, the main points I noticed from the difference in the movies. Is there anything else you guys wanted to talk about before we, we dive into who we thought did it better? I have one theory that it's been kind of bacon, and I Lay want to get us. your guys' opinion. <clears throat> so we've kind of talked about the differences of them as filmmakers. Whereas, you know, it seems like Ridley Scott kind of a lot of times takes this documentarian documentarian approach where, like, we know that he, he does a ton of work preparing for the shots, and he focuses so much on getting the right actors and getting, every, uh, getting everything set up, putting, like, four or five cameras in there and just letting them go and not giving them too much direction at the time, you know, and basically just documenting what happens. Whereas Steven Spielberg, we know, is every single shot, you know, it, it's, everything is... It's exactly how he wants it to be. And not to say that Ridley Scott doesn't do that. He storyboards literally the entire movie before he, he does it. So this this theory isn't 100% on point. But I think that there's maybe some sort of something about the way that they're, they're gods. I'm, I'm doing finger quotes if anyone could see me. Um, the way that they're gods and their universes kind of work. It, does that tell us something kind of about how their, their, their filmmaking works? And, and Spielberg's you know, the Jurassic Park, what we've kind of talked about here. It's, if not a benevolent God, it's at least, it's not a cold, uncaring, unfeeling thing, that it at least theoretically has some uh, desire to, if not direct the course of, of lives, but, you know, uh, maybe put a finger on the scale of things and and kind of guide and shape uh, life moving forward. Whereas Ridley Scott's is just kind of, at best, this cold, uncaring, unfeeling universe and that the the gods are you know hands off completely they set everything in motion and now they're just going to sit back and watch i don't know like i said i haven't fully stuck this in the oven and and baked it completely but i feel like there's something there what do you guys think Sorry, Nate. I was. I was waiting. I thought you were gonna. You were gonna I'm, I'm thinking that that's. I'm really thinking. I, I'm pausing on that. Yeah, Jeff kind of watched me like kind of shaking my head back and forth. No, I think I. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think there there is probably something to that. This is one of those moments where with filmmaking stuff where it's like, I, these guys are so meticulous that we can, uh, you know. We can we can go on and on about these theories. Sometimes I feel like I'm always crossing a line of like, and I I'm again I'm speaking as an English teacher here. Is like, did the writer really intend that? Uh-huh. You know, like, right. did, did we did the writer did the did the person really intend that interpretation? This is one that I don't know. Like may, maybe they did, and I, if there were two filmmakers that I would think, yeah, maybe they did actually intend that interpretation, and were not reaching, it would probably be these two guys. But I'm not sure. I don't even know if that's if it was intent, but maybe it's just kind of they couldn't help but portray quote unquote God, you know, deities the way that they have, because that's how their, their brain works. Again, I don't know that it completely holds up because like I said, really Scott, it, it's not like he just turns on the camera and says, all right, go do stuff. You know what I mean? He is very much about planning and everything beforehand, but it's when the cameras actually roll, 
It's my impression. Yeah, he's not Auburn. Kubrick, though. Yeah. You know, making Jack Nicholson do a take 80 times. Right, right, right. Yeah, so I get what you're saying. Yeah, that's actually interesting. And, you know, how much, because I, I do struggle with that as well, Nate. I remember my English teacher in high school, um, sophomore year in high school, we were reading Lord of the Flies, right? Every single page, you know, it was like, oh, the the parachute symbolizes the freedom of, you know, whatever. And we're just, we literally, that was the only time in any of my English classes we literally called our teacher out. We're like, come on, did he really, did the artist or did the author really intend this to, to, to be interpreted that way? And he was like, I mean, it's pretty clear that, he, you know, <laughs> so... So yeah, I, I do struggle with that line, but but I also do think that there is a lot of that, Steve, where the a lot of situations where the it's just so baked into who they are, right? That that they can't help but do things a certain way. You know, you think of Martin Scorsese, right? And he is he's very open about his issues with Catholicism, and he's that's his religion and what he's battled with over his life with that and he confronts a lot of that and a lot of this, this, the ideas of toxic masculinity as well, but he confronts a lot of that in his films. But then there's also a lot of the stuff in his films that I don't think is an actual direct confrontation or direct intention from him. That still gets, that still is a part of who he is that he would have, he even himself would have been like, I didn't even realize that this is what I was trying to say when I was saying it, you know? So I'm not saying that's what's happening, but I could definitely see that, being the case and i i think with with both these filmmakers they've been doing it so long and they're so ingrained you know even so in 93 spielberg had been doing it for over 20 years and you know by 2012 shoot i mean ridley scott had uh, 40 years so there's you know that there is a little there is something there to the idea that oh, they've just they've done it so long and they're so ingrained because in, i i do think there's there's you can get insulated in a world of your own making. You know, you're sort of, people talk about echo chambers and all that. Uh, so not quite at that level, but something similar to that where you don't even realize sort of how the, the baseline you've set for yourself because of this, this, you're just always enmeshed in this world. You're always thinking about movies. You're always making movies. You're one's in pre-production, one's in post-production. You're directing one. And so you're always just at it. At any, you don't have time to sort of separate and, and think to yourself. I don't, I don't know if that's the case, but I do think that there is, that is definitely a big possibility with all artists who all, who, who dedicate so much of their lives to it. And it's really interesting you say that because we've talked a lot about, I, I think everyone would agree the original Jurassic Park is the best and is, and is better than The Lost World that are the two installments that Steven Spielberg himself directed. If, if said, you don't, if you don't believe that, please write in. We would like to speak to you. Yeah, I, I would, I would love to hear from from anyone who doesn't think that. It's interesting because Spielberg himself, kind of to what you're uh, saying, Jeff, Spielberg himself has said that he he kind of lost control on the Lost World, where he actually got into he got so much into his head. Um, he's admitted that he grew kind of disillusioned with the movie while he was making it. It's one of the few times that, and this is of course many years later, like, you know, 10, 15 years later, but kind of grew disillusioned with it and has talked about how, you know, the first one, when the original Jurassic Park came out, it was actually the highest grossing movie of all time for a few years until Titanic came out. Like we're following up the biggest movie ever. And I kind of just got a big head about it. And I wasn't as focused on the characters. And I just thought, 
you know, if I put the dinosaurs on screen, people are going to love it and they're going to go see it. You have this whole extended sequence where we get the T-Rex in San Diego and he kind of admits that he sort of lost control a little bit. Um, so I think kind of to your point that, you know, it's interesting to hear a filmmaker um, uh, just not really have, um, you know, the control that he thought that he once had. Um, yeah, here we go. This is a great quote. Uh, Steve, is there, did you just drop this in there? Yeah, I found that yeah. today my when I was preparing. My sequels aren't, and this is from Spielberg, my sequels aren't as good as my originals because I go onto every sequel I've made and I'm too confident. This movie made a gazillion dollars, which justifies the sequel. So I come in like it's going to be a slam dunk, and I wind up making an inferior movie to the one before. <laughs> he finishes the last sentences. I'm talking about the last world in Jurassic Park. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a, not a lot of mystery there as to, to which two movies he's referring to. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's kind of what happens, and I think that, you know. No, certainly. I, I'm curious. I don't want to say any more because I want to hear what you guys, which one you think, which director you think did it better overall, and then I'll give my opinion. I think we all agree that Jurassic Park is better than Lost World, but I want to hear which filmmakers you think are, which one accomplishes the task better. Yeah, so who, do, do either of you want to start? With, I, Nate obviously doesn't. So I, Steve, I think I guess he's, you, he's deferred to the second half. I, I, want to, I think I might want to tie break this one. So yeah, okay. why don't you guys go? You do you have thoughts, Jeff? Oh, I have thoughts. All right, you go first because I, <laughs> I, I, honestly, I didn't really put them head to head as I was watching it. I was more just kind of trying to figure out who was doing, you know, how they were doing it. But I, I have thoughts now that I've, you know, he's presented this. So, but you go ahead. So, <clears throat> I, I want to get something. So I, as an alien fan, before we get into this, just a small aside, if you will. Um, both of you, I know, are Alien fans. Um, how do you feel about Prometheus and Alien Covenant in the pantheon of Alien movies? Because me personally, I love Prometheus. I like I like Alien Covenant fine enough, but I absolutely love Prometheus. And I would even put that as my second favorite Alien movie. Uh, so I'm curious, because that's a big bone of contention on that Alien subreddit. <laughs> it, it's I... crazy. Calling me an alien fan is a bit of a stretch. I like the first alien movie. Get off I'm of the podcast. Curious. You're out. Yeah, I, I'm more curious as to what Steve has to say because I know he's more of the, the Ridley Scott guy. Gotcha. Okay. So uh, I'll, I'll defer to him on that one. Well, not to keep, uh, you know, playing ping pong here, but I, I am curious what your, Nate, your comments and thoughts are because this is the first time you've seen both of these movies. But I will answer the question. Uh, Jeff, I'm with you. I love Prometheus. And I love it more and more every time I see it, literally every time I see it. Um, it seems like I find something new and it seems just deeper. And, and especially, I guess this time listening to Ridley Scott's commentary, he has been driven. Uh, I'm going to earn the explicit tag. He's been driven fucking crazy by who the space jockey is in alien, the original alien. Um, when I, when we rewatched alien a couple of weeks ago, I did the director's commentary and they recorded that in 2004. And at the end of it, he is musing. Um, I think he's in there with some of the actors and producers. He's like, I wonder why no one's ever really considered where the alien or where the space jockey came from. I, I can't do his accent. But even back then, you know, 20 years ago now, he was, he was really itching to figure out the answer to that. And then he talks about it all the time in the commentary for the two movies we watched today. So I think 
where, where's I going with this? Basically, you know, it, he's obsessed with this question of who the space jockey is. And, um, I think it's fascinating how he, he played it out. Um, and he clearly cared a lot about it. So it's different than alien, like the actual movie. Of course, aliens, a horror movie Prometheus isn't, I mean, it has some horror elements and stuff, but, um, yeah, I, I'm with you, man. It's probably my second favorite. And I, I really like Covenant too. I like it even more the more and more I see it. Because it's almost a combination of the, the big questions of Prometheus, but God, the second half of that movie just steps on the gas and, and goes just like the original Alien. So it yeah. it amps up the horror too. Okay, well I was just curious. So but to, to get back to the main point. Um <clears throat> Hang on, I, I, I got to hear what Nate's opinion is. Well, I guess you can tell us what your opinion is. Because I, I, I thought it was going to be yeah, part yeah, yeah. of his sort of ultimate answer. We're good, we're good. Um, so for me, I, I do think that even the reason why I asked that about Prometheus is because I really do like Prometheus. But of these four movies, um, Jurassic Park, clearly the best. Love me some Jurassic Park. And it's such a fantastic film. So that's out of the way. <laughs> um because to me, talk about playing God, right? We talk about, like, I, I, I called it Frankenstein Week. We called it Frankenstein Week, and I am a huge fan of Frankenstein's book. And the, the idea of it, of this sort of I, playing God mythos, is, is kind of, it, it's questions, right? It's questions that don't have easy answers. And I think, we've kind of discussed this already in previous weeks, that, Sometimes it's to his detriment because his reach may exceed his grasp, but, but Ridley Scott is much better at asking questions than Steven Spielberg is because Spielberg is just not all that concerned with questions, I don't think. It's, he's more um, concerned with you know, the answers and how, the, how his characters get to those answers, whereas Ridley Scott is, is a little bit different. He's about the character's trying to trying to figure out the questions. And so I, I love Prometheus. Part of why I love it so much is the Elizabeth Shaw character. And Numi Rapace just does a fantastic job playing that character, I think. And she, you know, just just like the pain in her voice as she's as we near the end and she's had this C section and she's just stapled up and they put her in this suit and she's just like, you know, she's screaming at him, Why? Why did you want to do this? We did nothing. Just the the this this passion and you don't get an easy answer and it's there is no easy answer to these sorts of questions and I think Ridley Scott does a good job of presenting that and I think in these scenarios for me personally even though it's not a neatly wrapped up answer I, I, that's okay for this because I, I I think part of it is just the question of what if and actually allowing yourself to think to go there right because. At the end of Prometheus, it's not, it's not all, like super bad, right? Like every pretty much everybody's dead. Well, everybody except for Elizabeth Shaw is dead, and so that that is obviously bad. But for Shaw as the main character herself, she's like, I have a mission now. I have a reason to be. I'm gonna go to the engineer's home planet. I'm gonna find this answer, right? So there's a little bit of hopefulness there. Uh, it just you know, it's 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 not Steel Spielberg level hopefulness, but there's a little bit of it there. But so so, you know, there's there is that slight positivity. But the um, it, there's just there's a better job uh, of 
asking these questions and giving these very difficult sort of answers that, that are just uh, aren't always clear and non-answers. Whereas you look at Spielberg and you, you look at the Hammond character and it's just, you know, he gets confronted. He gets asked these questions by Malcolm, who's just, you know, didn't, you know, the, the whole speech, life finds a way, that whole speech, right? Hammond just sees that and he's like, oh, okay, that's fun. And off we go. And that's that's kind of it. And so the this sort of sanitized version of of Hammond and of a sort of almost benevolent God, it just it it it's not as interesting to me. It it helps in the context of Jurassic Park to make it a better movie, but in terms of tackling that sort of subject of creation and what it means to do that and, and should we do this, is it right or wrong, etc. You know, the, the ultimate conclusion that I think Spielberg wants to make is that it's wrong, but he still can't fully get himself there. Because, like you mentioned earlier, Nate, it's still just the dinosaurs are happy and this is a beautiful thing and, and they're, they're, they're going to be okay and they're, everyone's flying off the island and it's going to be okay. And at the end of The Lost World, they, the, the baby T-Rex is back with its mommy and then they pounce on the evil corporate guy and he dies and and it's gonna be okay you know and it's just that's not always life and that's not always the way that that these sorts of things play out and so for me personally I find Ridley Scott's approach to be more interesting and I think he has spent so much time thinking about it like you said Steve that that it's something that he's been able to distill into a a something that is watchable and enjoyable but also not to the point where i'm just like what's going it's not free of life right where it's just all this obscure imagery and weirdness and you're just what am i supposed to say with this like there's there's some clarity there but there's still some openness and i find that to be be very interesting and compelling personally so i I give the nod to ridley scott in this in this regard uh Nate, you're entirely useless this episode. You're not needed uh, because I agree with you. Um, Steven Spielberg, I think, I agree with you. Jurassic Park is my favorite of the four films. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I could watch it over and over again. It's, you know, almost a perfect movie. Um, But as far as the theme goes, I think, like you said, Ridley Scott, he's just painting on a much bigger canvas. Um, You know, he's asking questions that Spielberg's not interested in, I think. Um, and not maybe not on a personal level, but you know, in terms of making the film, it seems like Spielberg set out to give us a show, and Ridley Scott set out to answer that damn question about space jockey. Like he wanted to do that for himself, no matter what happens. Um, so yeah, I, I'm with you. I I prefer Ridley Scott's approach. I think he wins this duel. Well, I guess I am completely irrelevant. Um, I I will say some of this is going to get into personal preference. I think that there are people. I think if you like, so I had never seen Prometheus or Alien Covenant. Watching for the first time to record this, I think that there are people who are, if you are a big fan of the franchise, you probably loved both of those movies. This is the first time that I'm saying this on this podcast. Steve knows this, knows this about me because we kind of grew up together and we've watched a lot of movies together and done this. In a general manner of speaking, and this is, there are many exceptions to this rule, I trend away from horror as a genre. 
And their particularly Alien Covenant goes a little too horror for me. There's also kind of something that gets affected a little bit with the Prometheus and, again, particularly Alien Covenant, is when you look at the original Alien, the chestburster scene uh, was so shocking because it was so new and so different, and we'd never seen it. By the end of Alien Covenant, the chestbursting, the novelty has really worn off. These things are just popping out of human beings left and right all the time, and... um, I kind of feel like that sort of wears off. There's also the scene at the end of Alien Covenant in the shower where I feel like is almost a very kind of standard horror filmish thing that even I'm surprised Ridley Scott went there. Um, And that's what I'm saying. I think if you're a fan of the Alien franchise, you probably love that scene. Um, It just seems like such a cliche thing to do. I agree with both of you. Uh, the, clearly, the, the the best film of these four is the original Jurassic Park. Um, honestly, if you're thinking of genre, and we, I think we would generally call these like science fiction horror, Jurassic Park may be the greatest movie ever made in that genre. Maybe something like Terminator 2 could compete with it a little bit. Maybe something like The Thing could compete with it a little bit. But Jurassic Park is probably... Uh, no one would have an issue if someone said that that was the greatest science fiction horror movie ever made. So I will lean with Spielberg just because of, but I'm admitting, I'm almost kind of glad I'm not winning this week that I'm not breaking a tie because my personal preference is really weighing on how I assess these films. I think Prometheus is better than Alien Covenant. And again, I've only watched each of them once now. I I liked the questions that were being asked in Prometheus. And I agree with both of you in what you're saying that I do think Ridley Scott, in terms of the question of the week of who is tackling these bigger questions? I, I think Ridley Scott is doing that. I think he's doing that in a more profound way that he's he's looking at much bigger questions and is really uh, he's not dumbing anything down for his audience. His audience is going to have to go in and ask themselves these kinds of questions. So I personally prefer Jurassic Park. Um, I think Jurassic Park is the best movie of the four. But I think uh, I, I agree with both of your assessments, and I, I will gladly concede that Ridley Scott wins this week, and I'm glad I didn't break the tie because I'm, I'm acknowledging my own personal preference, not against the horror genre. There are horror movies that I absolutely love, but just in a general manner of speaking, I trend away from that as a personal preference. And that's completely fair. And I think on uh, you know for me as well, I, I think a lot of that probably comes to personal preference also because I just happen to find that I, the, the ideas that Ridley Scott explores to be more interesting um, because yeah, I mean, there's like you said, with, with in that specific genre, if you were to Jurassic Park, I mean, who's going to argue that, right? Try it. Somebody try it, please. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but alien aliens may be the best candidate to go up against it, but that's true. That's true. It'd be a good question um, for the socials, honestly, is just to kind of get, you know, yeah. science fiction horror, what do we think is the, are, you know, are the top five movies in that? But yeah, I think Jurassic Park is certainly going to be, it's in the top five. Right. I mean, I, we're all in agreement on that. Yeah. So. It's definitely not a wrong answer. Right. For sure. Um, so yeah. So that's, what's our tally now? We got three to two now, Ridley Scott. Is that, is my, am I right okay. on that one? Like I always said, Ridley Scott, the best director ever. So that's, um, that's interesting, but we've we've still got quite a few weeks to go. So next week is um, Cyberpunk Detective Week, folks. 
we are going to be pitting Steven Spielberg's Minority Report up against Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. So two, um, you know, detective, futuristic detective sci-fi stories, but also, interestingly enough, two movies based on source material written by the same person in Philip K. Dick. So um, I believe Minority Report was, was this, that story was titled Minority Report, but uh, I always loved that Blade Runner was based on Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Philip K. Dick, there, there was nobody better at making titles for his short stories than Philip K. Dick. Like uh, Total Recall was a short story was um, we, can, we Can Remember It For You Wholesale. I love that. Like it's just you already know what the whole what the story is going to be about, and it sounds harrowing, and and anyway. But that's an aside. This is not a Philip K. Dick podcast. Don't confuse. Try not to confuse anybody here. <laughs> not not this um, week. Maybe next week. Not this week. That's right. But he he might factor in next week. So uh, anyway, so yeah, that'll be next week. Minority Report going up against Blade Runner. That's going to be a fun one. So. Um, we'll see you next week. Until then, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you got um, anything, any comments, you know, if you want to talk to us about why Lost World is better than Jurassic Park, please, please hit us up. Steve, give them the socials where they can where they can talk to us. Uh, yeah, we're at. Uh, I believe it's. You know what? It's on the show notes. I I don't have a pull up. <laughs> I think it's Duel of the Greats uh, at Duel of the Greats for everything except TikTok, and I think it's like Duel Podcast on there. Um, so yeah. It, just there we go. Just look, scroll down. You'll see it. You'll see it. Our producer so, Brandon Hill will get you squared away. Indeed. So hit us up with that. And for myself, Steve Shepard, Nate Carter, and of course our our fearless producer Brandon Nichols. Thank you all so much for listening. Um, we'll see you next week. <laughs>